Welcome to Tilted, a Lean In podcast. Tilted brings you conversations at the intersection of gender and culture. We dig into topics we're curious about, highlight people and stories that inspire us and we hope inspire you too, and share expert advice to help you make the playing field a little less tilted. I'm your host, Rachel Thomas, co-founder and CEO of Lean In. We know gender stereotypes hurt girls, but as the parent of a daughter and a son, I've seen that they hurt boys too. Our culture teaches boys that they shouldn't be compassionate or vulnerable. So boys lag behind girls emotionally, and they're more likely to struggle with behavioral issues too. Just like girls, boys deserve to grow up in a world where they can be their full, authentic selves. And that's the topic for this episode of Tilted. First, you'll hear from Peggy Orenstein. Peggy is a well-known expert on the experiences of girls, and she's written several groundbreaking books on the topic, including Girls and Sex, Cinderella Ate My Daughter, and Waiting for Daisy. Now she's bringing her expertise to bear on boys' experiences with her new book, Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. I am so thrilled to be sitting down with you. For everybody listening, I'm talking to the amazing Peggy Ornstein. And if you know her work like I do, the first question you want to ask her, so I'm going to ask it for all of us, is, Peggy, we think of you, we think of girls and women. Why boys? I know, right? (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Yeah, I've written about girls for 25 years. And after publishing Girls and Sex and going around the country with that book, So many people, parents. Which is an amazing book, by the way. Thank you. Parents, girls, boys would say, when are you going to write about boys? And I kind of thought, oh, I don't know. I think that's somebody else's job. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that nobody really was talking to boys and nobody was really listening to boys in a changing time about their views about intimacy, sex, gender, masculinity. And then as I was kind of thinking about that and gathering wool and doing some preliminary interviews, the Me Too allegations broke. And suddenly the scope of misconduct across every sector of society by men young and old became so obvious. And there was a mandate to reduce sexual violence, but it also felt like it was a moment where we could, in a more positive way, engage boys in what it meant, what it meant to be a man, in issues around sex and issues around consent and issues around gender dynamics and issues around emotion and emotional intimacy and hear what was going on in their heads because we need to in order to help them make the best choices. So I know you talked to, I think, over 100 boys. Mm -hmm. What is in their heads? What did you learn? Well, I have to say that, first of all, the thing that was even more than any specific conclusion was how much they wanted to talk. And that I was also not prepared for. The other thing I was really resistant about was I thought, talking to boys, what if they don't say, you know, they don't have a reputation for chattiness exactly like girls, right? I wasn't sure. And I thought I'd have whole transcripts of, uh uh-huh. You know, that would be I would have thought that too. Right? And that was so not the case. And especially, I think, because we're living in a time where there's a whole lot of new expectations, yet they haven't let go of the old expectations either. They're really thinking and struggling. It wasn't just that they wanted to talk, which was amazing, but that they were also such insightful narrators of their experience. And I think that it was just that our expectations are so low. Well, it shows a real thoughtfulness. Yeah. And just having somebody ask them and say, okay, I want to know about your interior life honestly and frankly. And what's more, we're going to be in this partnership because we want to bring those ideas forward to society and to your parents and not your particular parents, but to parents, et cetera. 
let's go. And they just took the opportunity. So where did they take you? What did you talk about? What did you learn? What most surprised you? I have like a million questions. Mm. Well, you know, I started with really talking about ideas about masculinity even before we got to sex. And with girls, I know you know this as somebody who has worked with girls forever, a lot of what I've always been documenting and what we're working with is this contradiction that girls face between all the old stuff the being pleasing, the being deferential, et cetera, and all the new ideas, the wonderful new ideas and the wonderful new traits that we're telling them they can embody. So it probably shouldn't be so surprising that boys, too, are struggling with a sort of old new contradiction. So on one hand, yeah, they see their female classmates as worthy of their place in leadership or deserving of their places in the classroom or professional educational opportunities are much more egalitarian than previous generations. They have female friends, they have gay male friends. And yet, when I would ask them, what's the ideal guy? It sounded like they were channeling 1955. And it went right back to athleticism, dominance, aggression, wealth, sexual conquest, and emotional suppression. Really teasing apart that with boys. They would talk about things like, I learned to build a wall inside of me. And I trained myself not to feel or... They're that self-aware. They were that self-aware. The only feelings I feel I'm allowed are happiness and anger. You know, one boy said to me that he had trained himself not to cry, so he couldn't cry when his parents got divorced. So he streamed three movies about the Holocaust back to back. That worked. (sighs) Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I felt like as I've traveled with this book and thought about it, it's a new thing when a book comes out, you have a whole different perspective on it. How much of this book, whether we're talking about masculinity, whether we're talking about porn, whether we're talking about hookup culture, whether we're talking about consent, so much of it at its core is about vulnerability and the ways that boys and young men wrestle with the taboo against it, whether they're embracing it or rejecting it or capitulating to it or denying it. Actually, a male therapist recently said to me, I should stop saying vulnerability and start saying emotional accessibility because that is easier for men. I don't know. But maybe it is. Um, But when we deny people's capacity for emotional vulnerability or accessibility, we deny their humanity. And we also, Brene Brown says that vulnerability is the secret sauce that holds relationships together. So we reduce young men's capacity to attain and sustain the kinds of mutually gratifying relationships that we want them to have. And that hurts them. And that hurts their partners as well. Paint a picture of what it looks like for boys who really are truly suppressing, truly getting caught up in bro culture. What does that look like? And then we can talk about how we don't get there. (laughs) (laughs) They would talk a lot about the locker room. And it's not just the locker room. It's those all-male enclaves, whether it's the locker room, fraternities. Oh, I don't know, Silicon Valley. You know, all these places where... That rings a bell. Yeah, where this culture can flourish. But in sports culture, I think it's particularly interesting because on one hand, we're hearing that sports creates teamwork, that it builds character, that it does all these things that are great and true. It's fun. And it can be a smokescreen for the worst kind of bro culture and bullying and us-against-them mentality and sexism and homophobia. And what boys would talk about hearing in the locker room was the classic stuff. How do they talk about? They use bragging about sex as a way to bond and reinforce the idea that they're heterosexual and that they bond through the control of women's bodies. And so what do they say? I slammed that. I banged. I hammered. I pounded. I nailed. I hit that. I tapped that. I I can go on and on. It's like they visited a construction site. It's not about intimacy. 
the thing was, was that the guys that I was talking to were not just embracing this, or they were not just blank slates on which the culture was inscribing. A lot of them were really struggling with this. Some of them had dropped out of sports that they loved, not because they didn't like the team or weren't good at it, but because they didn't like the culture, which could sometimes be coming from the coaches directly, by the way. But also, I talked to guys who would try to challenge that. And one boy, Cole, told me that he and a friend tried to say something when an older boy was saying something despicable, and they got made fun of. So the next time, Cole said he didn't say anything, but his friend continued to. But then and, he's struggling with that. Yeah. And so he's thinking, he's watching, he said, my friend, you know, they, he gets marginalized. They don't like him as much. They don't listen to him. He's spending all his social capital. But he said, I still have buckets of it and I'm not spending it. And I don't know what to do. I don't want to have to choose between my dignity and these guys. But how do I make it so I don't have to choose? Michael Thompson, the psychologist who writes about boys, talks about the silence in the face of cruelty and misogyny in which boys become men. So it's not just the boys that are doing that. It's the what can't other boys say? What can't they say? What don't they say? What won't they say? That also creates this kind of edifice of masculinity and disconnection. Its purpose is to keep you in check and to keep the lines of that man box solid so that you don't challenge it and you don't go beyond it. Could you talk a little bit more about the man box, kind of what it is and how we should understand it? Yeah. The man box is those rigid norms that we've been talking about and the ways that they police boys' behavior. And they will say, by the way, that they get a lot of those messages from their parents and particularly from their dads. The guys that I spoke with, some of them would say, yeah, my dad would tell me man up or don't be a little bitch. But a lot more of them would say, my dad wasn't sexist. My dad wasn't homophobic. My dad didn't teach me the so-called toxic masculinity stuff. But he did teach me the stunted side of masculinity because he wouldn't talk about emotions. He was more of a sigh and walk away kind of a guy than the kind of guy who'd ask you what was going on. So I learned not to have those conversations from him. So it's all these ways that boys learn to disconnect, all these things that police them. And what we know is that guys who hold more tightly to those rigid norms, whether it's ideas about dominance and aggression and wealth building or emotional suppression or sexual conquest, all of that, that they are not only more likely to sexually harass, to assault, to bully, but they are more likely themselves to be the victims of violence. They are more likely themselves to be bullied. They are more likely to binge drink, to be in car accidents, to die by suicide, to be depressed, to be lonelier than other guys and have fewer friends, real friends that they can confide in. So it's a tough place in there. And for all the rewards, because there are rewards, boys would talk to me about that, like, if you embody those things, you might get to be captain of the team, or you might get to be president of the United States, you know? But, you know. <laughs> but there's a huge cost right. to them personally, to their romantic partners, and, you know, at this moment, to the country. So h- how do we get them out of the man box? Jumping way ahead. You know, it's, this is still not discussing actual sex or consent or porn or anything like that. But one thing is when we have little boys, naming their emotions is really important because guys learn over time. Many adult men can't actually name the emotion they feel in their body. When that emotion has to do with sadness, grief, betrayal, heartbreak, all those things boys learn funnel into anger. So they learn that all those should be expressed through anger, which obviously is clearly unhealthy when you think of it that way. So just saying to your four-year-old, you know, wow, it seems like you're really sad. 
or that must be very frustrating, or when they express that anger, what's underneath that? What can you see? I mean, just that, fathers or father figures, men in boys' lives, listening and talking to them compassionately in a connected way, which I know is hard because they weren't raised that way themselves, but taking that leap and even a small, just taking the risk a little bit, helps young men know that they can stay connected to themselves. And I think that's step one. In your view, a lot of parents are getting the sex talk wrong. Mm -hmm. So how do we get it right? First of all, it's not a talk. <laughs> Any more than you could sit down your with your child and say, hey, um, this is table manners. You hold your fork with your left hand. You put your napkin on your lap. You say, please and thank you. May I please be excused? All right, go forth and be polite. I'm sure you'll be fine. Wouldn't happen. And there you go. And there right. you go. It's moving forward a little bit, but... It's about having a lot of different kinds of talks, small talks over time with your child about a lot of different things that involve sex, but not just sex, that involve media for sure, that involve porn, that involve personal accountability, that involve female pleasure. Because boy, if boys have that really, really wrong, it's about personal accountability. It's about all these different, you know, it's about love. It's about caring. It's about what it means to treat people with dignity. There's all kinds of opportunities. Another set would be about sexual assault. We talk about assault in terms of good guys and bad guys. If you're a good guy and a good guy can't assault, you can't have assaulted because you're a good guy. And that is a problem. Yeah, that is a problem. And guys, well, we know from research, they know what consent is. They can define consent. But... When they're faced with a situation where their actions don't meet their definition, there is a tendency to expand the definition rather than look at their actions. So making those kinds of dynamics visible to boys, making it visible to them that when they drink, we don't talk a lot about boys and drinking. We need to talk a lot more about that. When they drink, they are prone to seeing any expression of friendliness on the part of a girl as consent. That's a false assumption. When they drink, they're prone to seeing the place where something happens as indicating consent, like a dorm room. That's a false assumption. They are much less likely to hear no when they're drunk. They're less likely to notice a partner's hesitation. There is a socialization for both boys and girls that puts male pleasure before women's feelings. Having that conversation with guys is really useful. So it's a lot of different kinds of conversations. They can be spontaneous. In the car is a really good place. They can't get away. No so, eye contact. Can you talk a little bit, too, about how they treat each other? Because I know a lot of this is about conquest and their relationships with women, but a lot of it is about how they talk to each other and interact with each other as well. Well, sure. One really great example of that is how guys use homophobic slurs. Right. Yeah. One thing that was different was that older guys, the ones in college, were less likely to use that than they used to be. That was for sure. But also, a lot of the straight guys had gay friends, and they would say, oh, well, I would never use that word to a gay person. That would be homophobic and rude. <laughs> you know? And I was like, so it's not homophobic when you say it to a straight guy, but it is, that, like, it was a very peculiar idea. But it was because they saw it as a referendum on masculinity not as a statement of sexual orientation. And I began to feel that that word was very much like slut for girls. Yep. In that it's just fluid. It can mean anything, right? You can get called that for dropping a pencil, for reading, for playing a musical instrument, you know, whatever, not knowing drug terminology. It doesn't matter. But its purpose is to keep you in check and to keep the lines of that man box solid so that you don't challenge it 
and you don't go beyond it. Peggy, you talked about this a little bit, but how is the experience different for LGBTQ plus boys? There is an ex- a level of acceptance by this generation of same-sex encounters or of a gender spectrum of trans kids that has never been true before. And that's really exciting. One thing with gay boys in particular was that they actually kind of provided a model of what consent can look like because they were really good at navigating, not to say that everything was perfect in their world, but they were good at navigating the parameters of a sexual experience because they kind of had to be, because they had to, it was not obvious what was going to happen or who was going to do what with who and how. So they had to talk about it. And as one guy said to me, you know, I don't get straight guys' resistance to the consent conversation because when we're talking about consent, that means we're going to have sex. You know, that's great. So that was kind of interesting. And Dan Savage, who's a sex columnist in Seattle, talks about the four magic words that gay men will use at the beginning of a sexual encounter, which are, what are you into? And it's wonderful because it's an open-ended question, as opposed to in a heterosexual context, we so often think of a pre-prescribed set of questions that usually the boy is asking the girl that require a yes or no only answer. So it really opens it up. And that said, I also, in thinking further about that since I've written the book, was thinking, you know, the thing is, is that if you put that in a heterosexual context and a guy asks that of a girl, she might well say, I have no earthly idea, right? I don't know what I'm into because of the way girls are socialized. And and that was so much of what girls and sex was about. And so in a lot of ways, I felt like that little question really revealed how our socialization undermines our connection and also the ways that those two books were talking to each other. You know, what if we could get to a point where young men and young women and that could was say, the norm. what are you into? And anything could be ruled in and anything could be ruled out at that moment. That would just be amazing. After my conversation with Peggy, I followed up with psychologist Dr. Michael Reichert to learn more about boys' experiences. Dr. Reichert is a founding director of the Center for the Study of Boys' and Girls' Lives at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the author of several books about boyhood, including his latest, How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connections to Build Good Men. So, Michael, given you are such an expert on raising boys, and of course I have my own boy, so I'm endlessly curious about what I can do better, I am so thrilled to be sitting down with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Rachel, it's great to be with you, and I'm happy to uh, have a chance to talk with you and uh, have a chance to talk with your listeners in this way. First of all, congratulations on your new book, How to Raise a Boy. Thank you. In the book, you cite research that boys seek help from healthcare or school staff twice as often as girls and are more heavily medicated than girls, which is just heartbreaking. What is going on with our boys? Yeah, you know, that statistic actually is that their parents, but also all of the caregiving world is more concerned, it seems, about boys' behavior than girls. You know, and it, it just tells us something about how well boys are fitting into the boyhoods that we've created for them. And the way I think of it is that there's just an awful lot of poor fit going on in boyhood and all of the different ways that we're seeing boys acting out or struggling or falling down. What they're signs of, I think, is a failure to flourish in the conditions that we've created. What's happening to boys on a day-to-day basis, and what messages are we sending them that are ultimately, and you know, probably unintentionally, but really hurting them? There's an experiment 
that was reported by Olga Silverstein, who wrote a book called The Courage to Raise Good Men. And she talked about an experiment in a doctor's waiting room where a mother with an infant dressed in white came into the waiting room. Unbeknownst to the other folks in the waiting room, there was a hidden video camera. The nurse would come to the mother and would say, the doctor can see you now. The mother with the infant dressed in white would alternately hand the baby to one or another of the folks in the waiting room saying, would you mind holding my son? Would you mind holding my daughter? And the video camera would run while the mother was away for a bit. What they found, Rachel, was that when the baby was identified as a girl, the folks in the waiting room would hold the baby close, would smile, would laugh and keep her close. When the baby was identified as a boy, within 30 seconds, he was placed on the floor and given keys to play with. The idea is that we have this prejudice, this stereotype, this belief that boys shouldn't be or don't need to be kept close. And the problem with that is it really violates their most fundamental human needs. We say that human beings are wired to connect. That includes boys as well as girls, men as well as women. And very closely related to this relational nature is the emotional nature of all human beings. We've evolved as creatures where, you know, our minds, our beings process emotions in a relational way. We need to be talking about what we're feeling. Unfortunately, what happens to boys is that they get the message that if they dare to show that kind of human vulnerability, it's going to be interpreted as weakness or softness. Just yesterday, I was meeting with the high school boys emotional literacy group that I meet with every other week at this boys school outside of Philadelphia. I had a conversation with them because the prior time I'd met, the 18-year-old boy, the senior that I had worked with for a bit of time, was telling a story about how he had had a terrible falling out with his father. His father in the college process, I guess, was hassling him about one thing or another, and in the context of an argument, called him soft. And the boy, when he was telling this story, and this is in front of the 40 or 50 other boys in the room, he began to cry with frustration and anger and rage. And he said, you know, for him to call me soft means that he doesn't know me. He doesn't know how hard I've worked to be the person I am. And in particular, he doesn't understand how hard it was for me to work through what happened when he left my mom in a divorce that happened a few years ago. That's a really moving story. Thank you so much for that. That's a great segue to what can we do, you know, particularly the parents and the caregivers who are listening, to break this down and to lift our boys up? There's a number of decisions that the parent has to make. The very most important one is we have to assess, we have to be honest with ourselves. Do we have control of our attention? And can we offer it in an easy way to our sons? That's the most profound way a parent can validate a child to offer them our attention. You know, I'm finding as I go around and give these talks, very few parents actually have done much of that. Instead, we think that, you know, if we quiz our kids or if we attend their soccer games and stand on the sidelines and cheer for them, you know, that we're accomplishing the kind of relationship building that they need. But if we're overlooking 
this need to offer our attention. And attention doesn't just mean, you know, turning our gaze upon them. It really means finding that place in our hearts where we find them both interesting and delightful and staying in that place while paying attention to them and listening to what they say. This really resonates with me, and I feel so much better about my very lengthy conversations about the mythology behind Star Wars, which is of zero interest to me. Perfect. But we talk about all the time. <laughs> yeah. And my yeah. D&D sessions with Gavin, um, who is also <laughs> obsessed with D&D, because it really is kind of meeting them where they are. That's and, right. You know, leaning into their interests and what's important to them. What you're saying to your son is who he is on his own terms, is of interest to you. That is so character building, so building of a strong sense of self for Gavin. And that's really what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to use the resource of our attention, our interest, our love, to strengthen our son's sense of self. That was the insight in my educational research, and it's been the reliable finding in my clinical work that parents have this enormous power to affect their son's hearts and to reel them in if they get lost, if they get out there, uh, to bring them back close. But we have to exercise it in a thoughtful, tactical way, that power. And what I find is that many, many parents, just as many, many educators, we often don't realize the power we have and we don't know how to wield it. So the point of the book, really, if you were to ask me, why did I write this book? It really is to broadcast that message that we have the power to build a better boyhood, to help our sons navigate these threats and these challenges. And it, it resides precisely in our ability to connect with our sons. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You have some really interesting practical recommendations. Yeah. Could you share a couple of those with us? That relational teaching insight from the educational research, that really cued me to develop a set of strategies for parents to use in their own relationships with their sons. And among the strategies that I describe in the book are, are three. Deep listening, the notion of special time, even with an 18 or a 20-year-old. And then, then a model for discipline that is called listen, limit, listen. We often come to our sons urgent or worried or irritated, stressed in some way or other. What the boy picks up is that it's less him that's of interest and more about fitting his behavior into the comfort zone of the parent. And what we want our sons to come away from their interactions with us carrying in their hearts a sense of being well, well-known, well-understood, and well-loved. So these are all strategies to deepen and maintain a connection. And the very first one is simply to offer our attention 
and in a sustained way, not asking our boys questions that we need answers to, but rather following their lead and letting them reveal in whatever way they can who they are, what's on their minds, what's in their hearts, what's of interest to them. So, Michael, I want to know a lot more. Let's start with what is deep listening. Letting them direct the flow of the conversation, inserting ourselves only in as much as it enhances their ability to reveal themselves. That's what I mean by deep listening simply to listen to them and not require them merely to satisfy our curiosity or need to know. And that's true whether your son is three years old or 18 years old. That validation from a parent is irreplaceable. The other thing you talked about was this concept of listen, limit, listen. Could you pull that apart for us a little bit too so we know how to actually do that with our boys? Yeah, sure. When we notice a boy who's off course, misbehaving, acting inappropriately or in in ways that are simply unworkable, you know, the boy that is being mean to his sister or the boy that is lying or the boy that is unable to sit still through dinner or refusing to get a bath or doesn't do his homework adequately, what we're witnessing isn't a boy who's simply defying authority and needs to be dominated, we're seeing a boy that's acting in, an, in a way that is not in his best interests. And he's not thinking well. It's a cry for an intervention for sure. I'm not a liberal parent and, and I'm not encouraging other parents to be liberal in relation to misbehavior or boys' misconduct. Rather, I think I'm asking that we interpret that misconduct as a need for us to move in and to set a limit with them so that they actually have an opportunity to understand better what the heck is driving them off course. The only way that they're going to do that, though, is if we come into the situation first with kind of a clean slate. If we come at them because we're reacting impulsively in the moment out of frustration or anger, or we're worried and we come at them with, you know, our worries kind of broadcast all over our faces, what they're going to pick up is that our minds are preoccupied with our own emotional upsets and that we're simply looking for them to comply or submit themselves to the force of the moment. And they're never going to gain any particular insight, much less better control over their behavior. So, If we first assess that we've got the space, we've got the freedom to come in, and we've determined that, in fact, you know, this is a good moment, time and place to intervene, what we do is we simply take the boy, come up to the boy that has, you know, just simply uh, been mean to his sister, and we come up to him and we we step right up to him and we say, I'm not going to let you do that. That's not who you are. I know you don't want to hurt your sister. What's going on? You know, we set the limit. I'm not going to let you do that. And then what ensues, if we can simply stay in that place where we're available, we're attentive, we're calm, and we're looking at them with real knowing and care, what ensues is the boy in that kind of uncontrollable way might simply explode with upset, with feeling. And what will come out in the open is the truth behind the misbehavior. So what I say to parents is that third step, 
the listen step. That's the real point of this model because as the boy melts down or explodes and erupts, whatever it might be, the parent's job is to be what we call the holding environment, the one who simply stays present with him and helps him navigate his way through those upset feelings that otherwise would drive him off course. That's the pay dirt. That's the real point of the model. We might think that we can tell our boys, you know, over and over and over again, treat your sister with respect, treat her well. That's what we do in this family. As if a boy can simply incorporate those words, change his behavior, and become a better big brother. And the problem is the boy just feels scolded, driven underground, told essentially that he has to manage whatever upset he's acting out on his own and that the parent's only real interest is in controlling him and dominating him, even punishing him, you know? So that leads me to two questions. Um, One (laughs) is, what does a better boyhood look like? Like, what does success look like? And then the other is, what gives you hope here? How do we leave listeners with hope that we can get this right? So first, to your first question, you know, I think what we want for boys is that they be free to be themselves. I think that's the most important characteristic of a boyhood that's just and fair for boys, is that they no longer feel like they're being forced into a man box, required to submit themselves to a set of norms, cultural norms, that interfere with their most fundamental developmental needs, violate their natures. I think that the chance to be free, to be themselves, and to determine the kind of individual that they want to be, rather than have to perform masculinity in narrowly defined ways, that's what boyhood's going to look like, I think. Well, that alone gives me hope. Yeah, good. Michael, speaking of hope, are you seeing signs that we're moving in the right direction? I'm really clear here, Rachel. I don't think there's ever been a better time to raise a boy in the whole of human history. I don't think we were in the position we're in today ever before where we're really able to be honest about who is a boy, what does he really need, and what can we do to ensure that he can hold on to himself. I was just with that group of, you know, 40, 17, 18-year-old boys yesterday. I was trying to talk with them, as I said, about soft and hard, tough and vulnerable. And I was trying to have this conversation, and they kept pushing back at me, saying essentially, well, Dr. Reichert, you know, you're sounding a bit generational. Things are different for us now. <laughs> yes, I've heard that too. <laughs> you know, it's one of those moments, there, there are so many, <laughs> you know, they're, they're basically saying that your picture of what it means to be a man doesn't exactly jibe with the, the realities of our lives. Things are changing rapidly, Rach. As I said before, I think it has everything to do with the women's movement and how that has changed gender dynamics, gender relationships, possibilities for girls, and consequently possibilities for boys. There's just never been a better time for you to be the parent of a 14-year-old or for a teacher to be teaching boys. We're just learning things, and we're, we're finally, I think, able to think critically about inherited assumptions and prejudices, and we're debunking myths left and right. 
Well, I have a huge smile on my face that even the prospect that the women's movement has played a small role in helping our boys and shining a light on what they need. That really makes my day, so thank you for sharing that. Here's what Peggy had to say when I asked her the very same question, and I think this is a perfect place to end. How else are boys different than they were in prior generations? You know, one of the things that was really exciting and wonderful for me was that I really think a lot of the things that I was discussing with boys and even the things that they were wrestling with and having a hard time with, they wouldn't have even considered maybe even five years ago. The fact that they were looking at masculinity, the fact that they were considering lines of consent and what that meant, all of those things were really rich and wonderful and they really were eager not only to talk to me, you know, I'm a total stranger, but they really wanted to talk to the adults in their lives about it. As one guy said, it might be cringy, it might be uncomfortable, but he said, I wish my parents had forced me to have more of that conversation because trying to work this all out myself is really hard. So I think that was the most exciting thing. And I felt very much like I started writing about girls in the 90s. And at that point, everybody was sort of shocked that girls still were carrying these old ideas with them, you know, and, and that they were still harming girls. And it opened up this conversation that we're still having that you all have been such a big part of about change and expansion of girls' lives. And I feel like we're at that moment now because of what's happened in the culture with boys, where we're recognizing what's been harmful to them about old expectations and the way those old expectations make it difficult for them to embody new expectations, and that we're thinking about what would be the way forward that would be healthier and more expansive and allow for them to be their fullest selves and have the best possible relationships. And that's a super exciting place to be. If we want to get to real gender equality, we need to challenge tired, and let's be honest, really limiting stereotypes of manhood. After hearing from Peggy and Michael, I'm optimistic that we're finally doing exactly that for our boys. As Michael put it, we're debunking myths left and right. And as Peggy said, that's a super exciting place to be. That's it for today's episode of Tilted. You can subscribe to Tilted on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Sandy Smollins. And special thanks to Ali Bohr, Chelsea Paul, Kate Urban, Madison Long, and Nicole Roman from the Lean In team. And Caitlin Thompson, Ireland Meacham, Jacob Kramer Duffield, and Matt Noble at Audiation. I'm your host, Rachel Thomas, and I'll join you next time on Tilted. Audiation.